Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Daniel Mezik. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, A lot of really interesting things to talk about from your work. Daniel's been coaching executives and teams since 2006. He is a Scrum at Scale trainer, an expert on business agility, and the author of three books on organizational change. We'll talk about the books as we go along, and as usual, links to those books will be available at the episode page at jimrutshow.com. Why don't you tell just a little bit how you got interested in this area and what you did before? Yeah. So in 1993, I formed a IT services firm, you know, consulting firm. And uh, I had operations in three states for about 10 years, you know, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and, and Connecticut. And then with the dot bomb crash and the year 2K thing, all of that materially changed. And... Um, I found myself kind of um, pretty much on the beach around 2003, uh, not wanting to go back to the previous thing, which was no longer the happy hunting ground that it once was, and not knowing where I, what was, what was going to happen next, you know? So for about three years, um, I didn't know what I was doing. And then around 2005, 2006, I started hearing this noise about, about agility and scrum, you know, and XP. And started researching that in uh, 2005, 2006, I went to a class about Scrum. And and that pretty much put me on the path I'm on today. Yeah, since then, I've been involved in coaching and training in in that area. Yeah, I first got exposed to the Agile field in 2001 when I got asked to become chairman of a high-end chip design software company in Ottawa. And uh, it was an amazing little company for recent college grads who had about two years of experience at Northern Telecom, had some very clever ideas and were on their way, but they needed some organizational help and a little bit of help on fundraising. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they did have and which they believed in, in a religious fashion, was the use of Scrum. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to watch here, right? And maybe I can give wise man advice when I see what a ridiculous thing this might be, right? Has been a person who who generally scoffed at uh, management systems, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But truth of the matter, the old guy this time just sat there and didn't say anything, just learned. And actually it worked great. And uh, we did a second company with some of the same cast of characters after we sold the first very successfully. And they did it again. And they used a slight variation on Scrum, which they essentially had learned from the first time around. And uh, what's the other one? Kanban or some damn thing. It was kind of like a hybrid between those two. Yeah. And again, watched them do it. I didn't have a word to say. They clearly knew what they were doing. So I've been basically uh, participating as uh, involved with the use of since 2001. And then in 2013, a little teeny micro startup that I oversaw for about six months, we also used a variant on it. So I was very impressed. For the scope of a team of 10 or less engineers, I was convinced. That's what it's for. Yep. And I know, but your ideas are that the concept and philosophy can be used at greater scale. Is that fair to say? If you have certain, certain conditions in place, yeah, you can scale it. 
All right, let's jump in here and talk about uh, the first book I read uh, in prep for this podcast. As my listeners know, I typically spend about 10 hours getting prepped for each podcast. And the first book is called Open Space Agility Handbook, of which Dan is one of the co-authors. But kind of reading between the lines, I'd say it smelled like you were the main author. Is that fair enough? That's fair. I pretty much composed the list of authors. You know, they were invited in to, to help with the book. Um, they substantially helped, and I, I put them all on the cover. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. And essentially, the basic framing is around, I would describe it as agile open space technology. Could you just unpack that just a little bit? Yeah. Our natural way of working is to do what we're happy doing and do what we're passionate about doing, and do stuff we have energy around. So open space technology is, you could think of it as a meeting format or an event design that allows that kind of, you know, self-organized behavior to just show up and, and surface itself very, very quickly. The normal rules of engagement are suspended. Everyone's responsible for themselves in an open space meeting, um, for their learning, for what they contribute, for where they go and what they do. So if you have a great time in open space, you can blame yourself for that. And if you have a terrible time, you can also blame yourself. So, you know, the natural self-organized world, you know, reveals itself in open space uh, when people are in it. And if you've ever seen a picture of it, you know, sometimes it's up to, you know, 700, 800 people uh, sitting in a circle in the beginning and end of the meeting. It's quite an epic, you know, visual. And then throughout the day, Folks are left to organize their thinking, attention, and learning in a way that's meaningful to them throughout the day with the others. And we use that for uh, organization-level transformation. Now, how do you uh, staple that to the concept of Agile? They seem to be, again, in my mind and in my experience, limited that it is, I think of Agile as a technology appropriate for a team of not more than 10, maybe on a really good day, 12 engineers. How does the concept of Agile for a small team get stapled to this open space concept, which sounds like it could be up to hundreds of people? Yeah. So... I have a hypothesis about the Agile stuff. First, a decent definition of Agile is the abil ability to rapidly identify and respond to change and to take advantage of opportunities and, that are presented by that change. The whole idea of this revolves around self-managed teams. Self-managed meaning they're managing decisions that pertain to the whole group. So, the self-management idea is core to agility, and I have a hypothesis about this, which is most, if, if not all, of the improvement that you're getting from agility comes from this self-management behavior, right? So executive leaders create the conditions where this can happen, they get out of the way and allow people to do their thing. And when folks start making decisions, you know, they engage and the engagement is associated with just about every good thing. And then you see this great productivity improvement, improvement in quality, predictability, reliability, and so on, so on. Open space technology, the meeting format, without a lecture, it demonstrates what this self-managed, self-organized way of working actually looks like. So Harrison Owen composed open space in the 80s, the mid-80s. And his work predated the Agile Manifesto by some 16 years. So, you know, Open space technology, the meeting format, you know, formulated by Harrison Owen, or what, what he would say discovered uh, by him, 
is actually 100% aligned with agile ways of working. In fact, it, it totally embodies that. So when you go into an organization, you bring open space to an organization, the, the, the executives, the workers, the managers, the directors, everybody, they have a big wow experience. And what they're really experiencing is the power of self-management. So without a lecture, we're demonstrating how good it can actually be, how efficient it can be. And we bring that in, you know, an agile way of working. We use that as a sort of frame for discussing how this thing really works. So is it fair to say that the con? I'm again trying to get the concept clear here. Is that we have agile as a set of philosophies and tools aimed at doing work at the team scale, and then when you, you take those philosophies, at least if not all the techniques, and marry them to the open space meeting format, you are then able to bring at least some or all of the agile philosophy into larger scale entities. Is that reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you a story, right? So, so most organizations, what they do is they do an agile type pilot. So they might, might bring in scrum and work with, you know, three or four teams and, and get them moving. And those are teams that want to actually work in that way. Um, when organizations do pilots with scrum, Jim, they typically will look for willing teams to reduce the risk of failure, right? So willing teams, committed authority figures, the Scrum framework, you know, that's a winning combination. So most of these pilots will go pretty good. What happens is they get some really nice improvements in things they're measuring, and then they immediately want to scale it to a whole enterprise. There's some problems with that. The primary problem is the leaders get organizational amnesia. They forget that the teams that were in those successful pilots were willing teams. So we go from sort of an opt-in approach to a, a mandated rolled out approach. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that just doesn't work. And, and the reason why is because uh, good agile runs on engaged people and engaged people are people that are choosing, you know, and deciding choosing turns out to be very engaging. So there's this, there's this whole relationship between choosing something and being engaged and this is exactly the concept in open space. In open space, the meeting is optional to attend. No one can make you. You don't have to go to the meeting. That is a requirement of open space. So what we're doing with open space and organizations, Jim, is we're trying to gently introduce the idea of, you know, agile organizational change across the whole organization. And we're gauging that organization's willingness to proceed. You put all the people that are involved that are affected in, in an, uh, a large all hands open space meeting that's invitational. You're going to find out right away about the organizational readiness and, and willingness to, to move forward. A lot of these organizations, they quote, roll out, you know, scrum agile across their whole organization. They might as well just put the money in a big pile and fluff it up and sprinkle a little gas on it and flick a match on that million dollars, you know, that would hurt a lot less people. There's also this kind of infliction of organizational change today. So open space rolls that back and says, let's find out what people are willing to do and let's invite them into it. And that's how, that's how we do it with open space agility. Yeah. I think that's 
very smart because again the you know the times i've seen it agile work is when the people who are doing it are committed it's actually from my days as a corporate technologist uh, you know, may or may not know this back in the day i was responsible directly and indirectly for five thousand technologists that today is thomson reuters mm. and that was the day somewhat of the waterfall method though at least in my tech groups which added up to about a thousand people we didn't use anything quite so rigid as that but on the other hand we didn't use anything quite as disciplined as Scrum. And I would say that trying to have forced Scrum at scale across 5,000 people strikes me as a daunting task at the minimum. <laughs> Jim, this is, this is happening routinely around the world today. As we're speaking, there are probably three, four, 5,000 implementations of exactly what you just described. And the, the reason is basically that you know, executives, um, they want an ABC story of how the change is going to go. And meanwhile, Scrum is an empirical approach to uh, process control, right? So, and software being a high-complexity type of an endeavor, Scrum is perfect for that. Uh, the reality is that we're going to do a little, we're going to learn a little, we're going to inspect that, and we're going to go again. And, you know, that just doesn't land with a lot of authority figures who... They want to hear an ABC plan with an ABC budget. So they, they really want to, they want a waterfall approach to the implementation of an empirical approach. And that gets sold all over the world every single day. Ah, sounds like a shit show ready to happen. <laughs> it's in progress, Jim. It's totally in progress. Even better. I mean, you might be able to make a Saturday Night Live uh, yeah. sketch out of some of this stuff. It'd be quite funny. So now I think I'm getting a better sense of you know the whole open space agility concept here. So I'm going to try to restate it again. I, I tend to do this till I understand something very clearly, which is your argument is that your open space meeting technology and things we'll talk about later, like your hundred days, etc., yeah, yeah. are a way to to get an organization to appropriately adopt agile techniques at appropriate scale. That's right. So one would not expect to run a 3,000 person division from top to bottom using Scrum. That just wouldn't work. But that the teams within that 3,000 person division for whom Scrum or one of the other agile techniques was appropriate would seduce themselves into doing so when it was appropriate, something like that. Well, yeah, like organizations have different functions in, in different divisions and departments. So when we talk about product, all of product can run on Scrum at scale. Uh, certain conditions have to be in place, but it, it's, it's certainly doable. And you can, you can create a delivery machine and point it at anything uh, using Scrum for product. The organization itself also, um, you know, has different functional areas like HR, people ops, legal and compliance and, and so forth. And, you know, that they're not going to adopt perfectly to, a, you know, a scrum approach. But the reality is on the product side, scrum is a, is a very good way to organize your engineering teams, you know, at scale. So I'm working right now with an organization that has 900 engineers globally. And we're in the early steps of implementing Scrum at scale. And the first thing that I'm doing with this leadership team, with my, my colleagues, is we're taking them through a series of one-hour meetings. It's a 13, 14-person leadership team. And I'm confronting them with the reality of the Scrum Guide. You know, the Scrum Guide says things that are rather uh, abrupt and, and, and harsh. The, the primary thing that Scrum does 
is it it has a set of rules about around decision rights around the three roles. So for example, for the product owner, it says for the product owner to be successful, everyone in the organization must respect his or her decisions. So, you know, we're walking through those kinds of statements in the scrum guide and I'm asking the leadership team, you know, what do you think the level of agreement of the organization overall right now is with this, with this statement, you know, um, you're doing scrum, how, how well are you doing it and rate it on one to 10 where 10 is great and one is really bad. And then rate yourself. What, what's your level of willingness to support the statement as a leader to create the conditions where this statement can be true. And, you know, around the world, um, organizations overall do not go through this exercise. They just roll out scrum to unwilling teams. They don't ask the teams what they think or anything. They just roll it out. And a lot of times the CEO wants it or the CTO wants it, you know, but you know, you're, you're an executive for decades. So you know that just because you want something doesn't mean that your team wants it, your leadership team. Right? Yeah, let me. I have to tell you this story. When I first became a CEO of a publicly traded company, I brought on uh, one of my favorite strategy consultants, and he was cynical to the bone and would just tell you the way it was. And the first day, the first five minutes I was sitting on the imperial throne, he said, Jim, you know all these buttons and levers conceptually that are on your desk? Yeah. 90% of them aren't attached to anything. You can pull the levers and you can press the buttons, but not a goddamn thing will happen. Exactly. And you know what? He was right. And of course, you know, that was a company where I didn't build it. If I built it, goddamn it, all those buttons would work. But this is one where I came in. It was essentially a turnaround. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely right. Most of the shit was broken. And so the job was to unfuck it, basically, over a period of time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if you're going to do good agile, you know, you have to create the conditions or the, the space for people to do that kind of great work. And that space is created by authority figures. They create the conditions, they define the game. So I work with the leadership teams around, you know, creating those conditions. And I want a very, very strong, unambiguous yes to the things that, that the scrum guide lays out around decision rights. So they understand the way decisions are made are gonna change. You know, sometimes I kind of doctor fill them, you know, like they'll give me objections to the scrum decision rights. They'll say, oh, I don't like that rule about the product owner or whatever. And I'll say, well, hey, let me ask you a question. You make decisions today about product a certain way, don't you? They're like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, how's that working for you? And then we have that conversation. So they're admitting that the way they make decisions around product isn't working. It's slowing things down. It increases decision latency. And we're going we're gonna to use scrum to reduce that decision latency. That's going to require discipline. And I, I really love the way you mentioned that about, about Scrum. You mentioned Scrum requires discipline. And I just so enjoyed that you said that earlier because that's what it takes. Yep. I just realized we jumped in to the deep end of the pool. Could you take a couple of minutes and describe how Scrum works? Let's just use Scrum because I think that's pretty close to a core standard flavor of Agile. Yes. Just give you know the roles and, and, and you know, the, sort of the basic how an eight-man team might use it. Sure. Yeah. So Scrum is a, a, a prefabricated plan for executing on work in three roles. There's a product owner, there's a team, and there's a Scrum master. The product owner owns the product vision and maintains a list of things that need to be done and prioritizes that list. The team, you know, serves the product owner's vision by looking at that list, that prioritized list, in a 
highly structured planning meeting, the team and only the team has the right to decide exactly how much of the topmost prioritized work they can fit into their time boxed sprint, which is one week to four weeks long. Um, so product owner presents it to the team. The team examines it as it stands. They pull as much of the work as they possibly can into the sprint. They have a conversation about the release plan and contingencies, you know, things might happen during the sprint. And then they go off and they, they do the sprint. And the rule is that none of that work can change. It's frozen. The team knows exactly what the scope of their work is and they know how much time they have. They come out of that meeting knowing those two things. And then uh, each day they're required to depict their progress in some kind of visual artifact that anyone in the organization can look at. So it's put somewhere on public display or, you know, somewhere on a shared drive or something, Jim, where anybody at any time can see the work remaining. Yeah, but in a small company, like the ones where I've used it, we actually use uh, yellow sticky pads on a wall. There you go. So anyone at any time knows exactly where the team stands. And then each day the team has their own private daily scrum, a stand-up meeting, which is a kind of status meeting. Now, interestingly, in the status meeting, the authority that they report to is themselves. So each team member basically reports on what's going on with their work today and yesterday and what obstacles they're facing. Um, out of that meeting comes a list of impediments, things that are holding the team back. And there's a facilitator role called the scrum master whose job is to basically help the team be great. So as impediments are surfaced during the daily scrum and through, through conversation throughout the work, the scrum master takes care of removing those impediments. And the scrum master is duly authorized to do so. So if necessary, you know, the scrum master has, uh, is authorized to go to, you know, the highest executives in the company and, and straighten things out so this team can get their work done. Yep. And, and, and then when the sprint ends, uh, there's a demonstration of the work. Uh, stakeholders are invited to that demonstration. The product owner is there. It's their meeting. The team is there. They demonstrate the functionality. And the goal in Scrum, the, the uh, Scrum done extremely well, provides for the possibility of shipping something at the end of the sprint. So a potentially shippable increment of product is produced by the team, which implies a lot, right? Because there has to be a lot of testing. Uh, it has to be production ready. You know, all of these kinds of things have to be in place. So most organizations aren't there, but we move in the direction of improvement every single sprint. And then, you know, at the end of a sprint, we have a retrospective meeting where we look back on what we just experienced and get some learning from that and form some new experiments that we want to try uh, in the next sprint to improve a little more. And then we, we repeat the cycle. And, and that's, that's how Scrum works. And the team, size is, the team size is never less than three people or more than nine. Yeah, or ten, but in that range. Yeah, very interesting. I think you did a good job laying that out. A few comments I wanted to make. Just I think I'll start at the bottom and work my way up. Sure. Which is you talk about that in theory, you need to be able to ship something at the end of each sprint. You know, I tune that down a little bit and I say you have to have a deliverable that actually runs at the end of each sprint, you know, a deliverable meaning an internal deliverable that actually runs, which then implies that you, ha that you have to have a discipline of 
incremental builds all the time, right? None of it, none of this yeah. build it and then, or then write, 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 then test and then hope it all passes a test. Wrong. So you have to compile every night at the worst. And in this day and age, you might as well do it continuously, and which means that you have to invest. And this is something that if you don't do this, you probably shouldn't do scrum in a big corporate environment, which is that you need to invest in something called DevOps, which is a new career. And if you're a person looking for a job that will pay well for quite a long while, DevOps is one, which is what is the operational infrastructure necessary to be able to do continuous builds and continuous deployments without having to be touched by human hands. And there's all these really neat tools these days that do just that. And then the final part, I would put my flavor on it. If you're going to have deliverables at the end of each sprint using incremental builds and DevOps, it makes a lot of sense to do what's called test-oriented development, which is you literally write the tests first for every little tiny bit of code down at the That's right. down at the function level so that when you when you push the code to the server and the DevOps magic occurs and it's all built, all those tests are run. And if they don't pass, you get a yellow flag back to you by email or Slack or something within a minute or two of the time you've checked your code in. And you might check it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. At 2.05, you get a message on Slack says, oops, your code failed the following three tests. And that means that you right. you got to work on it so that certainly by the end of the sprint, probably better that by the end of the day, you fix those problems. I love that. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up DevOps. You know, like when a cub programmer goes to work for Facebook or Amazon, the first thing that they do with them is they have them push some code to production the very first day. So you can think of DevOps as a kind of radicalized agile, right? So what happens is all of the repetitive tasks that no developers want to do anyway is being relegated to robots, you know, programs and computers. And what's, what's happening there is the authority to make decisions is, is being democratized, Jim. Previously, like in these big firms, like insurance companies, brokerage firms, banks, government agencies, they have their quality assurance department, which is an entire, you know, an entire uh, thing with a, with a head and a budget and higher fire authority and all this stuff. In the new world of DevOps, radicalized agile, the cub programmer now is authorized to push things to production. There are no gatekeepers. If it passes through those tests, like you say, there is a 99.9999999% chance that all the code is good. So what's happening is a total revolution. Well, I, w- I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> you know, truthfully, code coverage is never that good. It's not eighty nine point nine nine. It's probably uh, ninety eight or ninety nine. So you can still have fuck ups, which is why if you're going to push stuff to production, uh, you have to have a way to revert real fast. And that's again part of DevOps. Right, right, right. So Amazon and Facebook they they push stuff to production four hundred, five hundred times a day, and they probably pull it back right. two or three times. Right, a day. right, right. So. What this is doing, Jim, is it's upsetting everybody. Everyone's upset. Why? Because people who made decisions yesterday do not make them today. The QA people used to make decisions yesterday. Now the cub developers make those decisions. That's upsetting to people. So there's this whole revolution in decision rights that's going on that's being driven by this agility stuff. And DevOps is a, a radicalized form of that. I'm so glad you brought it up because it, it so shows what's happening, that, you know, the revolution in decision rights and in, in software development is just amazing. 
if I was doing a readiness assessment for something like your open space agility, one of the things I'd absolutely make sure, if I said the word DevOps and a senior executive looked at me cross-eyed, I'd say, mm, maybe I better come back next year because DevOps would seem to be central to make this kind of stuff work, uh, particularly at scale. Oh, yeah, but you understand now, I mean, any organization can spend 100, maybe 150, 200,000 bucks and set this up, Okay. But the resistance is in the entrenched bureaucracy of QA and some of these other departments that uh, don't want to evolve. They, they like things the way they are. and you know. They don't want to lose their head count, right? Yeah. Yeah, they have their jobs. They don't want to lose their jobs. God damn it. You don't want to break the iron rice bowl. Exactly. That's what's happening. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the horses they rode in on, right? Yeah, and their horses, right? And then you barbecue the horses. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness. All right. That's absolutely good. Uh, you know, just critical stuff. But I'm going to pop up to my favorite hobby horse. Um, you know, people that work with me know that if I actually had to do a real job sometime, which I sure, sure, sure as shit, I hope I never have to do, uh, it would be as a product manager. I don't, even though I don't think I ever had that title, the, it's what I always was, right? Yeah. And, the biggest value I believe I added into corporate America in the, say, the, the 1990s was introducing rut style product management okay. and also into the startups. And, you know, the key part was that a product manager had to be a really senior job and frankly, it should report to the CEO. And as you can imagine, that caused all kinds of shit storms in the same way DevOps does. Mm -hmm. But when I then learned about Agile in 2001 and they made, you know, this focus on the product owner, I said, oh, I love this. This is like a miniature version of rut product management. And you highlighted the part that is absolutely necessary, but usually doesn't happen, in which is the product owner has to be strong enough to have credibility up and down the chain. Yes. And if you turn the product owner into some, you know, 22-year-old uh, person fresh out of college with a clipboard that they got a bunch of function points from the marketing department, you, you know it's going to be a shit show. Oh, yeah. The product owner has to be able to put themselves in the place of the customer. Absolutely. And they have to really, really know the business and they have to have more than a clue about the technology and they have to have the respect of of everyone in the organization. And, and this is a, a rare person. It's someone who relishes authority and has the goods. Now, are you seeing that out in your practice in the world that people are willing to or can find, whether they're willing or not, but that really good product owners are appearing when needed? You know, my whole approach to this around the roles is that in an organization, the best thing to possibly do is describe the role identify people who might be able to fit the role, get them all in one room and invite them to come in and occupy the role. And instead of assigning it, uh, this, this, will, this will create the best possible product managers you can get. You, you, you whittle it down to the, you know, the people in your organization that you think meet the criteria, you get them in one room, explain the gravity of the situation and allow them to opt in. This is the fastest way to get a good product owner that I know of. I like that. That's great because it's key. Without it, ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. In fact, I remember the very first PowerPoint I ever did on rut-style product management, it showed the product manager as the Greek god Janus with 
you know, the face that faced in two directions. <laughs> I said, it has to look to the, the technology, what's possible, and to the market, what's needed. In fact, I then eventually, it took me about a year, I cooked product management. This was not quite the same as being a product owner, but it's very close. Yeah. Down to one sentence. Do you want to hear the Ruttian one sentence on product management? Sure. <laughs> it is the optimal trade-off between the doable and the desirable. Yeah. And that raises the whole issue of value, right? Exactly. Someone has to know what is desirable. That's what being the surrogate for the customer is all about. Yep. And value value has many dimensions. And that's something that uh, is hotly discussed uh, during product development, you know? And that's how you prioritize things. Yep. But at the end of the day, you got to have one person make the call, is my view. Jeff Sutherland refers to it as the single ringable neck, you know, and, and he laughs yeah. about that. Now, I hope you'll interview him on your show. Jeff Sutherland is the, the co-creator of Scrum. He's a West Point grad. After that, he graduated top in the Top Gun fighter pilot program. He flew 103 recon missions over North Vietnam in an F-4 over the treetops. The uh, mortality rate was 50% 50 in people who had that job. He was in the Air Force for 11 years doing that stuff and other things. And then after that, he went on and, and got some, uh, got a PhD in statistics from Stanford. And he, had, he did cancer research as a professor at the University of Colorado. And he really got into complex adaptive systems when he started studying biology. Uh, oh, hell's bells. Let's say no more. Do you know this guy? Hook us up. Yeah, I could definitely hook you up. Yeah. Yeah, a guy who flies phantoms uh, above treetops. I have some personal history on that and is into complexity. Hell yes. And invented Scrum. Goddamn right. We'll have him on the Jim Rudd show. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's got, he's got something to say. And uh, he made this rule about the product owner having command authority over the prioritization of the backlog. And it's always one person, not a committee. And this is how you just, you know, reduce, reduce complexity really, really fast. You know, the developers can go to one person to get an answer. There's no ambiguity about it. There's a lot of decisiveness. The decision latency is really, really low. You know, the quality of what's being produced is very high if you have a good, competent product owner. And, um, yeah, Jeff, Jeff composed Scrum in the 19, early 1990s. He started in 1993. I actually was teaching at that time, I was teaching uh, Microsoft platforms and tools. I was working at a company called IDX in Boston that later got purchased by GE, GE Healthcare. And uh, I was hearing these noises from, from some people, some of the developers in my classes about this, this guy Sutherland, the new CTO, and he's, we got this thing Scrum, and we have this daily stand-up meeting, we have to answer these questions, and all this kind of stuff. What was actually happening was the genesis of Scrum right under my nose, but I was too busy to really even notice in those days, 1993. Jeff created a system where when the work is at the edge of chaos, you can bring it down from you know the edge of chaos to you know, complex and from complex to complicated and, and, and wrap your hands around it and, and increase the predictability and reliability of software development. You know, as you know, software development, you know, predictions in the beginning are just wild ass guesses, Jim, right? There's like two standard deviations, you know, a, var a variance in, 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 in the range of, of what could possibly happen, right? So through experience, we we, we narrow that cone of uncertainty, you know, th through getting direct experience. You know, th there's a couple lessons of Agile that are very interesting. The first one is 
just going and doing something is superior to talking about it, right? That's number one. Absolutely. Get direct experience, inspect the experience, right? And then the second lesson that's really interesting is the quality of the software turns out to be a function of the quality of the interactions and communications by and between the team members. So Scrum encourages very, very high quality interactions through the daily scrum, the sprint planning, the sprint review. You know, there's, there's a real efficiency of communication there that, that's really beautiful. And it, it's, it can create something really great. Yeah, absolutely. And we've discovered in the 80s something that was, I would say, conceptually a precursor, which again, back in the early 70s and early 80s, people would have the various subparts of the teams working on their modules and they wouldn't bring them together until ridiculously late in the process. <laughs> That's always a bad idea. At least in my companies, one of my innovations was the earliest possible end-to-end -end system, right? We could have fairly minimal functionality, but the goddamn thing had to work from one end to the other. And most of the businesses I was involved in was building online information systems mm -hmm. you know, that worked at a you know at least a continental scale, sometimes a worldwide scale. Uh, there was an awful lot of shit involved to make it end-to-end -end actually work. But I'd get end-to-end -to, -end to work you know, like three or four weeks into a year-long project. And people said, that's impossible. I go, no, it's not. We just put bullshit wherever we need to, right? And we will have information flowing from end to end and back again in three or four weeks. And then we will work from there. And that's, you know, again, conceptually similar, though not as fully robustly grown out as, the, you know, the scrub approach and its incremental builds and the damn thing, uh, you know, actually works every day. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's so great to be talking to a software guy about a software development process, right? This whole this whole thing with 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 that, you know, agile Scrum organizational uh, scaling of Scrum and so forth, um, points to the fact that it's the quality of the interactions, the communication, that determines the quality of the product. So, actually, <laughs> the more disciplined we are in communicating the better the quality of the product. That's 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 the lesson of, of Scrum. And Scrum is, it happens to be and has been tuned to be a pretty good approach. And I, you do make the point in your book, and I think this is important to throw out here, that even though you know my experience has all been Scrum, one case was a homemade variant of Scrum, but there are several other disciplines of Agile out there, and your books are quite clear that you should not prescribe one or the other. That, as I read them, that teams should choose which one of the Agile approaches that they want to use. Yeah, your listeners, um, they want to really do some research on this. They can go and, and Google the Agile Imposition or the Agile Imposition Revisited, where you'll read essays about how processes, you know, so-called agile processes are being imposed on, on teams. Meanwhile, <laughs> self-management is where all of the, all of the goodness comes from and you're killing it with the prescription, right? You're prescribing something to the team. They're not self-managing anything at all because they're not deciding anything. So this whole, this whole concept of deciding, Jim, is absolutely key to team productivity. So, you know, leadership needs to look at this as game design. So, yeah, certain decisions are set aside for formally authorized leaders and teams don't make those decisions. But a certain number of decisions that do not fall below a certain threshold in terms of frequency or number are given to the team. Why? Because the decisions generates engagement 
it gets in the head of the developers and they get in the game and now they're really creating something. If the decisions they're making falls below a certain frequency or, or number or uh, volume, uh, they will check out. They will literally start to just say, you know, I don't care, whatever Bob says. And, and that's what it's going to be. Yeah, I hate that. When people just become hands, forget it, right? The, the company has died. Right, right. We have to have heads and hands all the time. And there's also this concept of learned helplessness. Have you ever heard of this one? Oh, I, very, yeah, you, I don't know how much you've read of my writings about game B, but that is uh, what we call a core example of game A malware is learned helplessness. Why don't you explain for the audience what it means? Well, what it basically means is at some point, if you're experiencing pain, and you try to get away from it, and you can't get away from it. At some point, you give up. And even though the exit door is right under your nose, you won't even you won't even look for it anymore. And you just resign yourself to the pain um, because you know other people's other people's situation is good, but but mine really sucks. You know. And when that happens, the productivity drops dramatically in exponential fashion. So what's happening is there's, if, if, you, if you lord it over the teams, if you take all the decisions away, you make all the decisions for them, they will give up on engaging. And then they will also give up on everything. And they'll just become zombies. And this is what goes on in a lot of organizations all over the world. Yep. You know? And Scrum is actually a way out of that, right? Because it's saying in, through its rule set – no, some of the decisions belong to the team. Here's the definition of those decisions. And these, these rules are not to be trifled with if you want to produce good software. And so one of them, let's get back to the topic, is that the team should be allowed to choose which agile discipline they want to follow. Is that correct? Absolutely, because not every team, not every project or not every program, not every product is an agile product. Some are sunset, sunsetting projects that are you know well understood and um, do not require empiricism for the, you know, for process efficiency. You know, it's a lot of projects are ABC and products are ABC, but new product development, a lot of variance in it, a lot of unpredictability, a lot of uncertainty. You, you use empirical process control for that. You use something like Scrum. That's your way out of it. But to my point, I guess I'm getting to a more narrow point, is that the executives should allow the teams to choose which of the agile disciplines they might want to use. That's right. In open space agility, what we say is the constraint that we put in, you know, we have a 90-day experimental window where we try some new process. And the constraint is the agile principles, the 12 agile principles in the manifesto. So what we say to the teams is use any process you like. But don't violate these principles. If you violate these principles, we're going to take you out and you're going to get a talking to. But go ahead, use whatever you like within, within these constraints. And that turns out to be rather confining, but also rather liberating at the same time, because they are choosing within a fairly choosable range, right? It's a narrow range, but there's still some choice there. They can use Kanban, they can use Scrum, they can use other empirical approaches. And the act of choosing is very engaging. And, and that's, you know, the team itself becomes happier. That happiness gets associated with, you know, up-tempo, up-tone, and, 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 and boom, out comes high-quality product. Just for, again, for our audience, who many of them are not professional software developers, but they may be executives who have those uh, functions under them. What are some of the names of some of the other approaches other than Scrum, just so people have heard the words? 
Yeah. The two primary tools that are used today, Jim, are the Kanban method, which is pioneered by a fellow named David Anderson, and Scrum. And then within that, you know, there's there's other uh, practices that are used. So, for example, under the heading of XP or extreme programming, there's pair programming, continuous integration, ideas like this that that you incorporate and make part of your 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 sort of roll your own method. So, if you go to extreme programming, you'll see you know many things in there like refactoring, this kind of thing. Refactoring is, uh, is a programming practice where you restructure the code. It doesn't change the functionality, but it increases the overall robustness of the code, reduces the brittleness, makes it softer, makes it more malleable, you know, these, this kind of thing. Yeah, let's, let's now pop up a level. We've uh, you know, talked a lot about Agile itself. Now let's talk about your bigger picture, open space technology married to Agile. Why don't you take people through what open space is and, and get into some detail and you know, talk about your principles and the roles and that kind of thing. Take five or 10 minutes. All right. So open space technology, you know, what is it? It's basically, it basically creates the conditions where people can be themselves, where they can make decisions and act on what they want to learn and how they want to contribute. So let's talk about the starting conditions for an open space meeting in an organization, right? It's basically uh, three or four starting conditions, maybe five. Here they are. Number one, we have a matter of mind-numbing complexity where no one person has the answer or claims to. Right. That's number one. Number two is there's a diversity of opinion about it, pro and con, and people really care about it. So there's heat around the issue, pro and con about how to solve this thing. Everyone has an opinion about it. The third condition is this high potential for conflict as we process this thing. And the fourth one is a decision time of yesterday, like we've already waited too long and we need to do something now. Right. So those conditions are ideal for enterprise wide organizational change. Right. This makes the open space meeting, you know, highly conducive to an efficient change experience. So open space meeting is invitational in nature. No one can make you go to it. A formally authorized higher up authorizes the time and the space develops a theme, which is wide enough to contain everyone's you know, issues, but narrow, narrow enough to focus the group. Typically, that's, that's developed with a cross-section of, the, of people, of influencers and in, in, in people in the organization. And then the, the organization's given a couple weeks to process you know, an invitation that this leader sends out. Then when the day comes, the people who are strongly attracted to the issue, who feel passion and responsibility around the issue, they show up at the meeting. Let me let me jump in. Let me jump in here just for a second. One thing I try to do in all my podcasts is get down to tangible examples. And so as you're going through this, I'd love to throw out an example that we both agree would be appropriate for use of this process. And as I was listening to you, I, it struck me that one that fit all three of your criteria in the right context would be the classic problem for a successful but still early stage company is what should our next product be? Yes, that is a great theme statement. And so interesting that you put a question mark at the end of it because themes typically have a question mark at the end because 
question marks tend to open the conversation where a period tends to close the conversation, right, Jim? And frankly, one of the things in some startups I've been involved with is, should we even have a next product or should we continue to just invest in our current product? And it's a big tension. There's lots of controversy and it's at big stakes Yes, because it could be, you know, half of our free cash flow next year. Do we put it into improving our current product or we build a next product, right? So let's use that as a, when, when you're listening to Daniel talk about the process, think in mind that this is for, you know, a company that has one product doing $4 million a year. They've just reached break even, positive cash flow. And should we have a next product? And if so, what will it be? That will be our, our high stakes topic. So continue. Beautiful. Yeah. So so the, the formerly authorized leader who's going to function as a sponsor and the host, who's going to be the inviter, sends out an invitation, refers to the theme, refers to the opportunities and the threats that the, the group is facing, um, invites everyone to, to show up, kind of sets the boundaries for the thing, namely that, you know, we're looking for some solutions. There's going to be a book of proceedings that's generated, and we intend to act on those proceedings after we fin- after we come out of this meeting. So the meeting's just the beginning. We're going to use the proceedings as a basis for action moving forward. They send it out as widely as they possibly can. As many people that might be affected by the issue are invited to the meeting, and then whether they go or not, they all receive the proceedings. That's sent to them as like a PDF on a shared network drive or something like that after the event happens. Now, inside the invitation, they might provide a link that kind of describes what open space is. And open space is a, is a gathering. It's an invitational gathering um, around a theme. And there's five principles to open space. And, and, here's, and there's one law, right? So here's the five principles, right? First one is... Wherever it happens is the right place. You know, there's no, wherever you're doing open space, it's the perfect place. It's, it's good enough. It's going to happen exactly one time there in this way. And, and we're doing it right here. The second one is whenever it starts is the right time. The idea here is that the normal rules of punctuality are suspended in open space. Uh, the meeting will start when it starts. And that's pretty much when the people show up, when they all sit down, if it's supposed to start at nine, people get there early, you know, maybe it starts quote unquote early. Uh, if, people, if people show up a little later, maybe it's quote unquote late. There is no early or late in open space. It's just whenever it starts. The next principle is whoever comes are the right people. So when we have one of these meetings, the people who show up, we know for sure why they showed up, and that's because they were attracted to the invitation, right? The people who didn't show up, there's, there's 87,000 reasons for a no, but there's only one reason for a yes, and that's that they found the invitation attractive. So whoever shows up are the right people, people who found that invitation attractive. And then the next principle is whatever happens is the only thing that could have happened, uh, there's no preset agenda in an open space meeting. Um, there's all kinds of things that can happen and occur. So there's a slogan in open space, be prepared to be surprised, right? So one definition of being surprised is that you learn something. So there's a lot of learning that goes on in open space. The last principle is when it's over, it's over. So some small sessions throughout the day might end, you know, a little early. They might, they might go out in the hall and continue the whole day. Um, we don't know how long a session is going to go or, or who's going to show up, what's going to be said, what's going to emerge there. So 
these principles are recited by the facilitator. During the event, um, everyone assembles in a big circle. The sponsor who invited everyone reminds everyone about the opportunities, the threats, the theme, why we're here, and then introduces the facilitator. And then the facilitator will, you know, explain these principles. Now, I've facilitated dozens of these meetings. And what, what I find happens is by the time I get around to the third principle, a lot of people start smiling at me. And it's because they realize that this whole five principles and one law thing, I'm going to tell you the law in a minute, is just, it's a sort of metaphor for the, the fact that you're free. So as I recite the principles, I get the feeling, okay, I'm free to do what I want. Nobody can make me do what I want here. Nobody can not, not do what I want, but nobody can make me do anything that I'm unwilling to do at this meeting. We're all basically equal in authority here. So when they get that, they start smiling at you. And, and this, is, this is the vibe of open space. So one of the things, uh, one of the conditions is a high potential for conflict. There's a law. There's one law in open space. Here's the law. The law of two feet. If you are not getting the kind of learning that you are seeking or getting the opportunity to make the kind of contribution that you want to be making, your two feet can take you somewhere else where you can get those things. Leave, where, leave the session you're at and go to another one. So there is a couple of sort of sub roles in this uh, open space thing. There's a, there's a sponsor, there's a facilitator, and then there's a participants. But the participants can also can function as what we might call uh, bumblebees. They just move from session to session. They don't spend too much time in any one session. They kind of pollinate the conversation across all the different small group sessions that are taking place. And then there's this concept of, uh, you know, this behavior like a butterfly. People hang out. They don't go to any sessions. They don't call any sessions. They're usually found by the food and beverages, having conversations with people. And they're just in the space, right? So the bumblebees and the butterflies. Yeah. So again, let's get down to tangible. So again, as I recall how this thing works, there's an opening meeting where everybody shows up, right? Yeah, a big circle. Yep. Big circle. Everyone. So let's say 500, let's say the company has a hundred people and they all show up and uh, like a master of ceremonies, as I recall, starts the thing off. So let's start, you know, just run the, run the example through. Yeah. The sponsor stands up, welcomes everyone, reminds everyone about the opportunities and threats in the theme, hopes everyone has a great day and reminds them that we're here to get those proceedings because we're going to act on them afterwards. Then that, that highly authorized authority figure who invited everyone sits down uh, well, introduces the facilitator and sits down, and then the facilitator stands up and takes the people through the rest of the process of getting underway. So you could think of it like this. There's a convergence of everyone at the beginning of the meeting, Jim, and then there's a divergence throughout the day where we move into small groups. Like, So, for example, at 1 o'clock, there might be seven different small meetings going on in the big room, one in each corner and you know, spread out around the, the entire hall. Usually these meetings are held in a very large, you know, um, ballroom in a, in a hotel or something like that. So if you're in a small session, you can look around and see six, seven, eight other sessions going on. And you can see your friends, colleagues, and peers at those sessions. And you can also count the attendance at those sessions and, and, and you can listen to the noise level of what's going on and then that level of passion. And, you know, and if something grabs you, you can just get up and leave and go see what's going on over there. That's what goes on throughout the day. So at any given time, at 1 o'clock, at 2 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, there's seven or eight different things that you can graze on 
topics. And, and when the meeting opens, people announce those sessions and they put them on a, on a, on a grid on the wall. There's a big blank wall at the beginning of the beginning. And at the end of the beginning, that wall is filled up with sessions. And each, each uh, session um, is, uh, is going to occur at a certain time in a certain place throughout the day. And people can go up to that wall and plan their day. And at any given time at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, or 3 o'clock, there's you know, seven things to pick from, eight things to pick from. And then at the end, we, re- we reconverge and we have a closing circle. And that's where people offer their reflections on their experience today. And we have a formal closing and then we, then everyone's, uh, we deconvene and everyone's dismissed. Sounds pretty straightforward. Now you keep the available sessions up on a physical board. I was sort of thinking in my head, it'd be kind of cool to have an app. So, you know, new, new sessions could come and go and you could look at your app. And especially if you're going to have your right to vote with your feet, you could say, God damn, this session sucks. Let's see what's happening right now. Right. Yeah. Have you tried anything like that? You know, I have a great story about that for you. If if you want, I could tell you about it. Um, Sure. It was actually Capital One. It was the largest open space I ever did. They were expecting 400 people at the event. We we did uh, in two different cities. We did it in the first city. Uh, I was I, I brought some people in who had more experience than me with with open space because I, I felt that I needed that help. And one of the women who I invited, she came up to me and she was very gentle about it and everything. But she said, "Listen, Daniel, you know, tomorrow this we were setting up for the night before." And she said, "Listen, Daniel, you know." Um, tomorrow there's going to be like, you know, over 400 people here and, you know, the marketplace wall, the, the, this, this big grid is called the marketplace. Um, it's where the sessions go, where the people post the sessions, you know, that marketplace is so big and people don't, won't have much experience with this at all. And we might want to position ourselves to, you know, be, be, to receive them and kind of teach them, you know, how to post to the wall, you know? And I said, well, thank you for that. It's a good suggestion. Let me think about it tonight and I'll, I'll give you my answer tomorrow about what we're doing, you know? And, uh, the next day I woke up and got ready and I realized, no, this is all about self-management and self-organization. I'm, I'm not going to manage anything. I'm not going to authorize the management of anything here. We're going to, we're going to see what happens. So I, I went, we went to the space and I, I told Linda, the one who made the suggestion, you know, my, my decision. And she's like, well, okay. And then we opened up the, the, the opening and we went through the one law, the five principles, uh, be prepared to be surprised and everything else about open space. We, we told them what to do and how to do it and then invited them to come to the center of the circle and, and write their session down and grab the microphone and announce it to the group. And this one guy just made a beeline for the center of the circle and immediately announced his session, put it on the wall, and then he hung out over there. And then other people did the same thing. They headed to the wall and he guided them and coached them on how to do the marketplace. What that dude had going on was he had an app on his phone that he wanted everyone to use, which, which, which socialized the marketplace and made it easy for people to keep it in their phone. And he wanted to make sure everyone had a shot at using his application. So <laughs> that's kind of cool. Now, have you guys, is there a, a now a commonly used app for that purpose? There are some open space apps that um, automate and facilitate the, the marketplace and also the use of online open space. So I've done open spaces online, you know, with global audiences up to 200 people using Zoom video. 
Yeah, I remember we did one for Rally Point Alpha. It was kind of about two thirds of a shit show, but that wasn't your fault. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know if you remember that, uh, but oh yeah, I remember. That. I remember Jordan showing up after having a certain procedure. Yep, I let him in. But anyway, that's the that's ancient history. Okay, you've done a good job of describing what an open space meeting is. Now let's pop up to your next level of abstraction, at least as I took it out of your book, which is let's say a company has convinced itself it wants to deploy Agile where appropriate, let teams choose to use Agile or not, to choose what flavor of Agile or not, et cetera. And you've embedded this as a first round of what you called 100 days of experimentation. Could you talk about the framework of the 100 days of experimentation and how open space and agile essentially self-organize over 100 days within an organization. Yeah. So when you bring procedural change, ways of working change, organizational change, um, that creates anxiety. People get worried. And when people are worried and afraid, they can't learn very good. And, you know, agile is all about learning, adapting and, and, and changing and pivoting. So what we're doing there is we're bracketing the learning experience so it has a beginning, a middle, and an end that begins and ends with an open space meeting. And in the middle, we're going to use, we're going to do experimentation. We're going to do iteration. We're going to do adaptation and we're going to do inspection, right? So those are core agile ideas. We're going to we're going to inspect, we're going to adapt, we're going to work in iterations, and we're going to experiment in an iterative fashion. So what we're really doing here is we're taking those team-level ideas, Jim, and we're making them first-class objects at the level of enterprise. And we're executing on a 100-day iteration of change where there's an inspection at the end, we're going to have a referendum on what worked, what didn't work, and what we want to change at the enterprise level. And this has a profound effect on people that are resistant, okay? Because they're not being asked to do this for the rest of their lives. They're being asked to do this for 100 days. So what we do is we create what I call a chapter of learning, and that is, is bookended by these two open space events. So at the first open space, and this is key, the leader, the sponsor, the host says to the folks, not just we're here for the proceedings, but if you like this meeting, you know, in a hundred days, we're doing this again. So suspend your disbelief and act as if and pretend that we're, what we're about to embark on in the next 90 days might actually work. Okay. If it doesn't, we're all going to get a hearing. Everyone's going to get a hearing in a hundred days. We're going to inspect this thing and, and stuff that didn't work. We're going to drop like a bad habit. But we're, we're moving in the direction of improvement one way or the other. That's the message. That, and that's interesting. And I think it's, I would say, psychologically wise. Because uh, one of the things I've taken away from my business career is that most people really don't like ambiguity. Right. There's only a few of us maniacs who actually thrive on it. But they're willing to tolerate it in tolerable doses. And so what you're doing here is saying we're dosing this ambiguity for you. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. And, and that's a very astute observation. What, what, what happens when you, bring, when you bring this stuff to an organization is people get real nervous because here's what's really going on, Jim. We are refactoring the authority distribution schema when we bring this Agile stuff on. 
People who made decisions about product yesterday don't make them today. Other people do. That makes a lot of people nervous about their kids' college education, about their own mortgage, about the, their car payment, and all this kind of stuff, right? Their retirement, the whole nine yards. So, so it's very triggering because it's triggering this fight, flight, and survival instinct. And then when people are triggered like that, they, you know, they're not behaving rationally. So what we're doing here is re- we're reducing the anxiety that is brought on by this ambiguity that you're talking about, Jim. Again, I, you, you compartmentalized it. And further, you, I like the, the concept where, again, there is no dictating to the teams that they must choose Agile, but they're going to learn about it. And here's some ways that it may be good for them. If they want to, they get to choose, which is kind of cool. Then now popping up one more level, as I understand your process, you then have a repeating of these 100 days after the first 100 days, if things went well enough, people wanted to. Yeah. Now, regarding the 100 days, what we know from experience now is that 45 to 90 days is the sweet spot. Okay. 90 days is like, you know, one one material quarter on the calendar. 45 days is half of that. And lately, there's been a, a rash of uh, this trend towards OKRs because of the John Doerr book. Um, and that maps neatly to 90-day iterations. So 45 to 90 days is pretty much the standard that we're using now. Okay. But in terms of in terms of what you're saying, yeah, we're going to use iteration to just like with Scrum. The the metaphor is in Scrum you have sprint planning, you have the sprint, you have the sprint review. In open space agility, you have the first open space meeting, you have 90 days of 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 experiment with the new way of working, and then you have the second open space meeting. And that frame allows people to make meaning of the situation. So that like your startup example, where should we build a new product or not? You know, should we continue to go with our first product? Should we build the next product? Where are we going to get the money from? All this kind of stuff. Coming out of that first meeting, there's a book of proceedings. It's got a bunch of ideas in it. The organization is going to act on some of those ideas in a, you know, 45 to 90 day period. And the idea is they will look back and look forward in the next open space. For instance, maybe it came out of the first meeting here, you know, here's some research we need to do, or here's a little prototype we need to try to build, right? And if we can't build the prototype, then we probably shouldn't try to build the product, right? That's right. So there could be, it could be some action item. Is there any formal mechanism in open space to cook down the book to action items? Or is it not intended for that? Yeah. Open space meetings are intended to generate dialogue and ideas. The proceedings that come out of an open space meeting that, you know, are output of an, out of an open space become input into action planning. They're not quite there, but the next, typically the next day. So, so this is what typically um, I've done and works really, really well. You have the meeting. The next day, the chairs are all in a circle. They're still in the same room. People come in and they inspect the proceedings. They spend 30, 40 minutes uh, browsing the proceedings because you, know, you can't go to every single session, but every single session is documented in the proceedings. So you, you, you leave through the proceedings, you thumb through it, uh, you pick off the ideas, the themes, and the, the major ideas that are in there. You pick out the seven or eight top ones. Those are presented to the you know the, the leadership group. The leadership group picks four or five things that they want the the whole enterprise to focus on. And then you look for champions who are going to going to pull that together in the next ninety days. They work directly with executive leadership. Yeah, and they're authorized to to champion that issue. So what we usually do there in that session is we put one issue per flip chart on 
around the room. So if there's five issues, there's five flip charts, each one with a different issue. And then executive leader stands up and explains that we're looking for people to champion these things in the next 90 days. But before you jump out of your seat, let's explain the gravity of what this means. And then they lay out the constraints. Like one of the constraints might be, if you volunteer, you can't unvolunteer. You're in for 90 days. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. You also commit to, you know, meeting with us once a week or every two weeks and, you know, some other constraints. You know, typically what you'll do is, is take the bottom 10% of somebody's um, workload and, and distribute it to other people. So they have 10% of their time to work on this issue. And that generates a tremendous amount of engagement. When that's over and, and the leader says, okay, those of you that want to champion these issues, you know, go stand next to the one that's really hot for you. And then usually about five, six percent of the people get up and they stand up and they stand up next to those issues. And then we have kind of a science fair kind of approach after that where everyone else gets up and grazes around. Um, and then you've got the, ni- the 45 to 90 days kicked off and you've got champions and you've got those issues. And it's it's a separate what I'm saying is it's a separate uh, event and a separate function. There's dialogue. Then there's deciding and action. And OK, then now let's talk about the next meeting. What does that look like? Yeah. So you mean like after the uh, experimental period has passed? Yes. Yeah. What that looks like is uh, here's what happens there. Okay. We talk about people gaming the meeting, right? That's actually a form of self-management and self-organization. When people learn about this open space meeting format and they learn that it's really open, uh, what they'll tend to do is conspire with their friends to move the second meeting in the direction that they want it to go. So the second meeting is like a retrospective and a prospective. It's a retrospective on the past 90 days, what worked, what didn't work, what do we want to change? And it's also a prospective on what's the next chapter look like and, and what are the next set of experiments that we want to do. So what happens is the real passionate and responsible people they will tend to talk to each other and start to sort of strategize and plan how they're going to play the second meeting. And that's when it gets really interesting. So I was in one company where the scrum masters conspired around getting a product roadmap out of the second meeting. And the product guy was not the least bit interested in that. And within about a month and a half, that guy was gone. He quit. Because after the second meeting, what was in the proceedings was we want a roadmap that looks out at least 90 days, 190, uh, 180 days would be better. And they went to him and he's like, no, I don't think we're going to be doing any of that. And then they went to his boss, who was the general manager. And we got that meeting and those, those scrum masters facilitated uh, a half a day or almost full day meeting product roadmapping session where they got that roadmap and kind of deauthorized this product guy. And it wasn't too long after that that he quit. And then progress at that company really escalated because he was blocking. Mm. So these are the kinds of things that happen in these, in the, in these meetings. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I think that's where we'll transition uh, away from your first book to one of your other books. I picked two of them to read. The second one is called Inviting Leadership. And again, there'll be a link to it on our episode page at jimrutshow.com. Why don't you talk a little bit about this idea of inviting leadership? I actually found it quite intriguing. might be uh, nice just to introduce it. Sure. Yeah. The idea here, Jim, is that you're 
in an era of full employment, in an era of mobility, in an era of change, your best workers are at will employees. They're really volunteers. So if you're not mixing in some invitations with those delegations, you might be losing some of your best people because they have a strong drive for autonomy. And the idea here is, especially in times of rapid change, you need feedback. So delegations do not generate even one-tenth of the feedback that an invitation generates. So, for example, you invited me onto the show, right? Right. And then what happened next? I got to choose the timing of my response, the medium of my response, the content of my response, and so many other things around you know, my responding to your send of that invitation. And that's all rich feedback for you to act on about um, just how good or not good this interview might go, right? So with delegations, you don't get any of that feedback. And in good agile, in good scrum, good empirical process runs on feedback. Without feedback, you have nothing. So the idea here is, yeah, continue to delegate. But mix some invitations in with your delegations, because here's why. Because every invitation has inside of it an invitation to decide, yes or no. And it turns out that decisions generate mindshare, and deciding is highly engaging. You know, so when you invited me, here's what goes through my mind. What happens if I say no? What happens if I say yes? What will I miss if I say no? What will I experience if I say yes? All those things are in my head. So when you invite me, you get in my head. This is a very, very strong way to lead today, especially when you want to be able to respond to change. Um, Responding to change is about feedback. So invitations generate that feedback. They, They engage your your best workers, the ones with options, the ones who will loiter at the exits with their resume if they smell that smell. Could you give a nice tangible example of where a manager might want to choose to use an invitation rather than a delegation? Yeah, let's take an example where, um, let's take that product owner example. You know, you, you asked me earlier, you know, how, how do you select a good product owner? My approach would be define the role, Identify people who could fit in the role. And then if there's three or four opportunities to play the product owner role, invite 12 people and let them know, you know, the first four who respond to this, they have the job and and see what happens. Now you're going to get super enthusiastic all the way in, 100% in product owners instead of foot dragging, pissy, half-hearted product owners. At least you increase the chances of it. I don't think any of these things are panaceas, but I I can see that would be interesting. Your concept here, dig into it, is that putting a decision into the head of the person who may or may not do the work is actually an important way to generate information, right? In this case, it is. you can figure out who is interested in this role and who's not, rather than saying, Sue, you look like the right person to be the product owner. She may not want to be the product owner, but she might feel compelled to say yes. Yeah, and I could give you another tangible example of something that I did in the 90s. In the 90s, I had a technical services firm, and, and it grew to about 55 people, and I had operations in three states. I created a, a, a benefit, uh, which was a book stipend, right? People could spend 500 bucks a year on books. And here was the rule. The rule was the book has to pertain to your job, quote, in some way. 
And then it was user to lose it. And then it reset every year in January. Those were the rules and the constraints. And everyone was invited to just take advantage of it. Well, don't you know how much feedback I got out of that, Jim, right? So a lot of people who were working like in .NET, they were buying Java books. I had no idea they were interested in Java stuff. So I got to talk with them and I found out that they were real passionate about Java. And um, I was able to move some things around and, and really, really keep people engaged and motivated. I got a lot of data from what books they bought, when they bought them, whether they used up all the stipend, what, what, you know, what they were reading, what they were interested in. And, and that's another example of generating feedback off, an, off of an invitation. Hmm, that's, that's a good one. What else can we talk about here? What, you talked about the core principles of inviting leadership. Could you go into those? Yeah. There's four things in common with any good game and any good invitation, right? So Jane McGonigal wrote a book called Reality is Broken uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And on page 22 of that book, she defines the properties of a good game. And there's four of them. And I really love her definition. She says a good game has a very clear goal. Second thing it has is very clear rules or constraints. Third thing it has is a way to clearly track your progress to know what level you're at and to get feedback. And the fourth property and the most important one is opt-in participation. So it turns out that these four properties also apply to any good invitation. Any good invitation has, has these four properties clearly defined. So in the book, what I describe is that there's some real rigor and discipline that has to be applied to your invitations. In fact, you can't just casually invite someone. You have to really think about it and structure it properly, unlike delegations, which you can just throw at people, you know. So it sounds clinical, but it's, it's actually very simple, right? Like, you know, I can invite you to dinner now and I could, I could uh, satisfy all four of these properties. You want me to take a shot at that? Yeah, well, actually, why don't you use the example of inviting some people who might be candidates to be product owners? Because that's a little bit more business. Yeah, yeah. So here's how it would go. Um, let's say that I was reciting, you know, an email that I had composed and I was reading it now. And I'm going to put it out to to all the candidates that we believe would be good product owners. Maybe it's 20 people. All right. That's perfect. We'd have a preamble, you know, discuss the, the need, the opportunity, and the challenges we're facing while we're moving to Scrum. And then would say, you've been, you've been selected as a, as a candidate to, to occupy this role, you know. Um, it won't be assigned to you. You'll have to choose it. You know, and here's, here's the goal. Our intent is to create a predictable and reliable delivery function in this company. So we have a delivery machine, okay? And the product owners play a critical role. They're actually the hero of the, they're the star of the show. They're the deciders and they have a lot of authority. They also have a lot of pressure because they have to face the pressures of uh, the technology teams, the business teams, and, and they have to resolve, you know, they basically lay it out as an enticing uh, high, high profile role. So, you know, the goal is to improve our predictability, reliability, and quality of our products, and, and you'll play a critical role in, in the vision of our products. Uh, what are the rules? You'll need to show up, if you're interested in this, at a meeting that's uh, two weeks from today on, on Thursday, where we'll, we'll provide further information about what this role is and the gravity of it. You must do the following things before you arrive there. You know, thing one, thing two, thing three, and one of those might be read the Scrum Guide, right? 
we'll track our progress through time and tasks through the meeting and uh, also by who, who signs up. You know, we need four product owners, not three, not five, but four. And we hope that you'll consider being one of them. The first four who volunteer, there'll be a vetting, you know, be like one more, one more sort of check before it's final. But um, if you sign up, you know, there's a high likelihood you're going to get this job. And, and here's, how, here's how you'll be measured. You know, here's how you track your progress. Here's how you'll be, uh, you'll know where you're at. And you're invited. Now, as we get into the book a little further, you start off by talking about authority. Yeah, give me your view of authority. I have my own views, but I'd love to hear you have you articulate from the book, or since then, the book's a little old, and then we can talk a little bit about authority and how one should think about it. Yeah, so authority is a triggering term. Um, when we go into an organization, you know, and we're being introduced around after you meet the person or when you meet the person, the, you know, the introducer will always say, Oh, you know, Mary runs product or, or Mary ports to so-and-so and quality, you know. So you know like where they are and what their authority level is. In the book, we define authority as the right to do a specific kind of work. And some of the most important work you could possibly do is making decisions that affect the group as a whole. If you're authorized to do that, um, we call you a leader if you, you know, uh, participate in decisions that affect the group. But the definition of authority in the book is the right to do a specific kind of work. And then we go on to define power as the exercise of authority. So authority is a really deep topic. And I'm, I'm pulling this from the group relations community. There's a worldwide community that uh, studies and implements the work of a fellow named Alfred Bion, B-I-O-N. And um, they run these conferences that are empirical where we study authority in the here and now. Um, and they create a temporary institution in these conferences where we explore and play with authority in a safe kind of a space away from work. And uh, I've attended several of these. And the people that I've met there have been, you know, pretty amazing. Like, like people who run West Point, captains of industry, university professors, all kinds of really high-achieving, high-impact people who are struggling with the exercise of authority in their jobs. And I'm bringing that experience and that learning to, into the book, right? So you could think of authority as the essential information that describes the group. So if I want to know the group, all I need to know is who has decision rights. That's going to form the structure, so in the book, what we say is, if you want to change culture, all you need to do is change who's authorized to make a decision. That will change culture right away. Let me hop in here. This was this is something we believed in a lot at the Thompson Corporation. I remember once at the, you know, we used to have these uh, annual top management meetings, like 150 people, something like that. And I remember as part of my uh, keynote address, I said, Here's one of our unfair advantages against our competition. In the Thompson Corporation, which is like about an $8 billion company, 50,000 employees, mm -hmm. we have 500 people who are authorized to waste $50,000. 
Beautiful. I uh, looked over at the CFO and watched him cringe, but then also smile because he knew it was true. Our number one competitor, McGraw-Hill, we know there are three people who are allowed to waste $50,000. And I assert that this is one of our great competitive advantages. Mm-hmm. They, our mantra at Thompson was we delegate authority down to the level we're comfortable with and then one level below that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I should say this was Thompson in its heyday in the 90s. They brought in the usual corporate clowns and the next generation of management, and it ain't that no more. But man, did we do some amazing things with that design of pushing authority down. And of course, if you push authority down, you have to put accountability down. So uh, in, right. in Thompson, it was well known, you missed your numbers two years in a row, and your head will definitely get lopped off. Oh, well, right? <laughs> you had all the authority, right? And if you fuck it up, it's on you. Exactly. You had danger and you had opportunity all in one spot, right? Yep. We had 25-year-old guys, right, who were four years out of college who, you know, were running a $5 million business unit. And they had amazing authority and accountability. Right. So authority, authority to do what? It's authority to decide. In this case, authority to hire and fire, to design their budget, to once they have their budget, within the you know very broad uh, flexibility to spend their budget how they want. Yeah. So authority to decide when it's authority to the edge, here's what happens. Your company becomes more responsive to the ever-changing range of opportunities that are present each day, you know, as things change. If you, if you centralize control, centralize decision-making authority, then you get to be less responsive, Jim. That's the bottom line. I will say that this is, goes into evolutionary theory, that in a, a business space or any kind of competitive space, there are fitness landscapes that are either changing rapidly or slowly. And if they're, if they're changing very slowly, like say you're a nail factory, right? Pin factory. Let's take Adam Smith's canonical example. Yep. Probably you don't need to decentralize too, too much because you really need to optimize or what they call in evolution, exploit. You need to exploit the space, make better pins for less money. On the other hand, if you're in the publishing business in 1992, which is when I showed up at Thompson, well, at least a few of us knew damn well that a a revolutionary sea change was about to happen. In 1992, Thompson got 90% of its revenue from paper maybe throw in some CD-ROM. And what we knew by the by 10 years, it would be the other way around. And so this was going to be a very rapid changing environment. And he who was most, he or she who was most adaptive on this fast evolving co-evolutionary landscape is going to be the winners. We basically went from number four to number one in 10 years by being wasteful. It's interesting. Our profit margin was always a little lower than McGraw-Hill, a couple points. Mm -hmm. But our ability to transition from the old world order to the new world order was vastly more rapid. And that was the do or die thing at that time. Isn't that interesting that you're you're, you're, you're mentioning that? This idea of, uh, you know, sending, uh, distributing authority to the edge and that there's some, what we might call uh, necessary waste involved there. There's a fellow named John H. Holland. You probably know him because he was a trustee and an external professor at Santa Fe. Do you know him? Great friend of mine and one of my most important mentors in my scientific third career. Well, isn't that interesting? I just, I've just come across the most remarkable book by this man. I've never seen a book like it. It's The title is Signals and Boundaries, Building Blocks for Complex Adaptive Systems, Jim. I have not read that one, but I am going to. This is a super interesting book because um, those signals at the edge 
right? When you empower decision make, you know, uh, the individuals at the edge with decision making authority, they're at the edge where the where the signal is, and and they can actually respond because they have the ability to decide. So th- this man John Holland he writes extensively in his book. He uses like um, microbiological cellular theory to describe what goes on in social systems. And, and that's exactly what it, we wrote about in the Inviting Leadership book as well. So, you know, it's extremely interesting about this boundary management stuff, and in particular concerning decision rights, the boundaries on authorized decision rights. And that's your next point in the book. Uh, so let's talk about that. Yeah. So that it turns out that like <laughs> most of the impediments to good throughput in most organizations is because they haven't refactored the what I call the authority distribution schema or the distribution of decision rights, Jim. The world changes, we have a reorg, but the reorg comes too late. You know, it's this is latency. So, you know, with Scrum, what we're doing is where we're creating um, a lot of responsiveness around this by creating the conditions where the authorized decision rights are in the right place so that impediments to good product, high quality product, reliable, predictable product delivery are removed. The biggest impediment to delivery is the way we're making decisions. That's what's actually going on around the world. So we, we make decisions a certain way. The world changes. We keep making decisions that way. Now there's an impediment to throughput, right? So this whole idea of authorized decision rights and continuously refactoring that so that the impediments to good product and all the things we say we want, the goals we're trying to see, those, that those impediments are minimized or even completely removed because uh, my hypothesis and the thing that I coach executives on is that the way decisions are being made in the organization is actually the place where all the problems are. Absolutely. And in fact, I go a little further, which I'll say, what is an organization but a signal processing system whose output is decisions? Exactly. That not that so true? So, so the book Inviting Leadership basically offers the assertion and the hypothesis that if you distribute decision rights which is what you're actually doing with imitation, that you become a more responsive organization in a time of, of um, you know, high magnitude change. Technology, these, I, I was listening to the Apple uh, financial results for the quarter. There's 1.3 billion Apple devices out there now. This is totally transforming society. I was saying to my wife, uh, Roberta, that it's not changing the fabric of society. The technology is the fabric. So what's happening here is the pace of change is speeding up. It's hitting businesses first. They're stuck in the mud in the way that they're making decisions, and they can't get out of their own way. And these companies are going to get acquired. They're going to um, be run over by, by faster-moving, nimble competitors, smaller ones, startups with nothing to lose. And this is, this is what we're up against. So in inviting leadership, what we're doing is we're actually taking an empirical approach to leadership. That's what the book's all about. Let me add one light final tuning, and then we're going to have to wrap up here. We're about at our time, which is I would 
extend the authority with a little cloud around it of signaling. And I'm gonna give you a real live example. One of my collection of businesses I was in charge of when I was at Thompson, I was a group CEO, whatever the hell that is. And one of my businesses was one that would periodically have serious problems on short time frame. And we had pushed a lot of authority down to the head of that business unit as would be usual. Mm -hmm. But because of the nature of the business, there could be things that were beyond a reasonable amount of scope to push down to a 27 year old guy. And so I told him, Chris, should there ever be an high, and I was a busy son of a bitch in those days. I mean, my time was scheduled in 15 minute blocks and it was just nuts. But anyway, I always told him, Chris, if there's a decision that is above your large, but not infinite delegation of authority, and you need me to make it right now, come and stand on my desk. Beautiful. And <laughs> even if I'm in the middle of a meeting, and he was a very athletic guy, or like a former wrestler, I think. Anyway, one time he actually did that. And sure as shit, it was a mission critical fucking decision that had to be made like in the next three hours or there would be large consequences. And so he appropriately used signaling to extend his own authority. Now, isn't that interesting that you, you defined a protocol? Exactly. Literally, it's a protocol. It's a protocol. That's what you actually did. And, and that's a structured interaction. That's a very, very uh, high-functioning kind of behavior. So the signals, symbols, and signage, right? There's a whole science around this called semiotics, Jim, right? Yeah, purse, right? Famous Persian theories of semiotics. Exactly. So, so a subset of this is, uh, is biosemiotics. That is, you know, the, the signaling and signage and, and symbolic aspects of, of biological systems, right? In the Inviting Leadership book, we introduce a, a further subset of semiotics, which we call leadership semiotics. And that's actually the story that you just told was a story about leadership semiotics. So, so leaders can think of themselves as signaling devices in the, in the social system, right? So when we go down the highway driving, we use signage and symbols and signals to keep ourselves safe, right? We use the signs along the road to find our way, and then we signal, you know, to the other vehicles that are moving, you know, what our intentions are. So we, we signal our intent through directional signaling. This is what leaders are doing, right? So, so people are listening very carefully to what they say and what they do. And leadership semiotics is actually a very big deal. Cool. I didn't be knowing I was no semiotic motherfucker. (laughs) 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 I love Peirce, Charles Peirce, probably America's greatest philosopher, but he doesn't write like a philosopher. He can actually read this stuff. And there's a a wonderful collection of his writings on semiotics called Peirce on Signs. You can get it on Amazon for 20 bucks, something like that. Well, uh, we're about at our clock here. Daniel, this has been wonderful. I think this has been just the kind of conversation I was hoping to have. There's still like seven more topic points we didn't get to, but that's all right. Keep the audience wanting more, right? That's the whole idea. Okay, Jim, thanks a lot for having me on the show. I'm, I'm very honored to be on the show and to be included in, in, in such a list of people. I mean, the, the list of interviewees you have is uh, just amazing. And, you know, I listened to several of the episodes and they've been, they've been edifying and, and rich and, and uh, you know, nourishing, you know, they have a high nutritional content. This episode, I hope will do the same. I'm going to turn it Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.